0: I want to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Jonah. We are going through a series in what I call the 12, the 12 Minor Prophets. The last 12 books of the Hebrew Bible. And we're kind of taking them one Sunday at a time. Some of the longer ones, I'm not sure I can really do them justice in one Sunday, but we'll give it a shot, see how that works out. We might have to be stalled at one or two of the books. I think of Zechariah, which is my favorite book, one of my favorite. I'm not quite sure I can do all those chapters in one Sunday, but this morning we have Jonah, four chapters, a very familiar story. Uh, Jonah comes just after the book of Obadiah and just before the book of Micah. You're still looking for it. It's towards the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. Over the years, I've been on a lot of um, crummy boat rides (laughs) in my attempt to go fishing. Uh, But the one that I remember the most is what many of us who were on that trip called, it's called the Tuna Trip from Hell. (laughs) I organized several of the men here at the church to go out on an overnight trip out of San Diego and as we got outside the harbor, the captain got us all together and said, okay guys, it's a little bit bumpy on the outside, so we have two choices. We can stay inside on the Coronado Islands where it's relatively flat and we'll fish for yellowtail and some bath, or we can go out on the outside of the islands and try for some tuna, but it is a little bumpy and so all the men said we want to go for tuna and I thought no we don't but we did anyway and we spent the next 24 23 to 24 hours in 6 to 8 foot seas and almost everybody got sick and I think we only caught two fish, two small yellowtail and rightly it was called the tuna trip from hell um the reason I tell this story is uh, Jonah starts out with a crummy boat ride. <laughs> um, and they didn't catch any fish either, but rather the fish caught Jonah. Now, most of us are familiar with the story. It's, uh, it's a story that probably begins around 8th centuries BC, um, prior to the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of. Of Judah being bothered by the Assyrians and Babylon's so That hadn't taken place yet, but it was about to. And the story we're fairly familiar with, uh, Jonah is a prophet. He's called of God to go to Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, and to preach against it because they are wicked people. Uh, he wants nothing to do with that, and he heads in the opposite direction on a boat, heading for Tarshish, which many believe was the, near Spain, so he's going in the opposite direction the Lord causes a rather large storm to take place uh, and after several hours of uh, fighting the storm they find out that the real cause is Jonah he gets thrown overboard, they throw him under the bus and uh, he spends some time in uh, the stomach of a fish uh, it doesn't say a whale, it's a fish, it just says a fish um, After a period of time, after three nights and three days, he is vomited up on the beach. That's what the Bible says. He vomited Jonah up on the beach. Jonah does (coughs) respond to the call of the Lord. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches. They repent. And as a result, he's not very happy. Okay. That is in the essence of the story. Now, some have trouble with the whole fish thing. On. Three days, three nights, the belly of a fish. Do you really believe that? Well, it just depends on how big your God is. I believe God uh, created all of the galaxies in the universes. Perhaps millions of galaxies with billions of stars. Uh, do you got troubles with a little fish? Uh, I don't think so. I don't have trouble with that. Maybe your God's too small. I don't have trouble with it at all. And the other fact is, and this is the fact that I like, is Jesus believed the story. Matter of fact, he ties it to his death and resurrection. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the the heart of the earth. So I don't have any uh, problems with that. What does the book have to say to us? Okay, you got the death and resurrection. It's an illustration of the death and resurrection of Christ, yes. And it also talks about Nineveh repenting, turning to God. Yes, that's good. But what does this have to say to every generation of people? It's uh, 28 centuries removed from us, but it is—it's got a powerful message because it talks about. The issue of what we call prejudice or partiality. And I looked up the definition of partiality. And the definition of partiality is being biased or prejudiced towards a group of people or a person for without any reason. Without any reason. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the phrase partiality... Uh, is used many times, several times, and it's specifically about the Lord. And it says that the Lord is not partial. What does that mean? It means, uh, well, literally, the word literally means not receive a face. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, the Bible says that God is not partial. He doesn't look on the color of your skin or your national origin or your size, or your shape, but he looks not on the outside, but what? On the heart. So God is not partial. Unfortunately, throughout history, the church, and even America, has shown prejudice and partiality towards a certain group, or a certain ethnic group, or a certain color. Now the church has uh, also been guilty of that throughout history. We see that oftentimes the church has been prejudiced or partial towards black people, towards Chinese people, towards Japanese people, towards Irish people, towards Italian people, towards Puerto Ricans, towards Mexicans uh, over and we could just name run up a list of people who were looked down upon for no other reason, for no real reason, just because they were different or not our ethnic background. And so what we'll see here as we look at this book is that is the issue that jumps out on us and speaks, would speak to us this morning. So let's take a look. Four chapters, and I'm going to deal with this issue uh, by asking answering four questions. Four questions. Each one having to do with one of the chapters. First question. Why did Jonah try to flee from the Lord's presence? Why did he do that? Look in um, verse 3 of chapter 1. It says in verse 2, um, the Lord told him to go cry against the wickedness of Nineveh. And he says, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, over to by Spain, from the presence of the Lord. The first question is, well, what's going on? Why why aren't you obeying what the Lord has told you to do, Jonah? Well, the answer is found, believe it or not, in chapter four, beginning in verse one. It says, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, This is after Nineveh has repented. And he said to the Lord, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and the one who relents concerning calamity. The point is that after Nineveh repented, Jonah wasn't at all pleased, and he said, "This is the reason why I didn't obey you. This is the reason I fled to Tarshish, because I'm not interested in the Ninevites receiving your, your grace. Matter of fact, I wanted them to snuff. I wanted you to snuff them out. Now, the Ninevites were part of the Assyrian Empire, and they were a wicked people. It says in verse one, uh, verse two of chapter one, that they were wicked." But as of yet, they had not done that much harm to the Jewish people. And he says, "Um, you know, this is why I fled. Because I knew, given a chance, you would relent. You wouldn't destroy them. I wanted Sodom and Gomorrah for those people. I wanted you to put them down. I didn't want them to receive your grace. And so he says, I fled from your presence because I knew if there was a possibility that if they would repent, you would grant them your favor. So his attitude is so strong that without a prayer, without a question, he's off heading in the opposite direction. Now, after they repent, and we'll see this in a few minutes, that he says, now that they've repented, now that you've granted them <laughs> your forgiveness, your favor, I just want to die. <laughs> I just wish I would die. Now, I have to confess before you that following uh, 9-11, the events of 9-11, and that which has proceeded after that, that which has gone on with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, I have become rather soured, if I can use that phrase, towards our Muslim friends. I'd have to say that. I'm going to say that honestly, and perhaps there's some of you who as carnal as I am are in the same place. But that's not the way God is. God is not that way. God is not that way. It says in the Bible that he is not partial and given a chance he will re- relent the calamity that he calls upon those who turn away from him. So, first thing that we have to understand is why Jonah was fleeing from the Lord is because he did not want God to give favor to the white people. He wanted God to snuff them. He wanted nothing to do with them receiving God's grace. Perhaps, perhaps that attitude resides in our hearts uh, towards certain ethnic people, certain people of different race or different color, perhaps. Okay, second question. What does Jonah's disobedience illustrate? What does Jonah's disobedience illustrate? In every case, um, when we see the disobedience, there's effects that come as a result. And in Jonah's experience, he illustrates several for us. Now, look first, going back to chapter one. It says, in beginning in verse four, that the the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm in the sea. The ship was about to break up. So as a result of his disobedience, the Lord sends a great storm, and the great storm is so great that it's about to cause the ship to break up. Is that not what's happening? And guess what happens? And as a result of his disobedience, many innocent people... Many innocent people are put in peril, and they could die. Is that not true? In other words, the sailors, they didn't do anything. They just took them as a passenger. And they started out and thought it was just going to be a nice boat ride. Didn't turn out that way. All of a sudden, all the sailors and the ship's captain, they're about to lose their life. Now, from that, I get this principle. Is it possible that we could say that oftentimes innocent people suffer, innocent people suffer? Uh, are put in peril of death because of the disobedience of God's saints? Is that possible? Mm, Okay, works here, right here. Because it says, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea as a direct result of his disobedience to what God had told him to do. Is that possible? Well, it is. Let me give you an illustration. At the end of World War II, General Douglas MacArthur was made the governor, perhaps some of you didn't didn't know this, the governor of Japan. He was the military governor of Japan. He was in charge of Japan at the end of the war. And he was, his job during that occupation was to restructure Japan, uh, their government, and their constitution he was in charge of writing the japanese constitution to restructure the whole japanese country and general Mac- douglas macarthur at that time noticed one thing the japanese people were discouraged and depressed about their humiliation of losing the war and you know what general douglas macarthur said he called for a thousand missionaries a thousand missionaries to come to japan because he was thinking where the Japanese people are perhaps they're very very open to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the response of the American people and the American church was "Mm, not too much, not many missionaries came the American people at that time were not going to be very magnanimous to their defeated enemy they were still harboring a lot of bitterness and anger towards the events that had happened in the previous four years. And not many missionaries came. And as a direct result, that open window that was there kind of closed. And Japan at this present time is still one of the great unreached people groups in, in the world. As a direct result of the disobedience, um, we see here that many people were put in peril of their lives. That's the first illustration. Notice verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone below into the hole of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep. Jonah had no zeal for the people of Nineveh. (laughs) Neither did he have any problems. Was he really concerned about the sailors in the ship? Matter of fact, kind of, and I see this as kind of like, he just went down, got into bed, pulled the covers over his head, and was hoping that it would all just go away. Uh, Expressive of very... uh, depressed kind of person. Now I might be stretching it here a little bit, but oftentimes when we disobey that which we know is the clear will of God, it can lead to a place of uh, there's no zest in life. There's no, no feeling of just by getting out there and living life to its fullest. And that's what Jonah in in rejecting the word of the Lord he just pulls the covers over his head and he's hoping, oh please just let this end somehow. Hmm. Look at verses 11 through 15. Now this is interesting. They finally figure out what's going on. The storm has been caused by Jonah. He owns up to what's going on. And he tells them in these verses hey, why don't you just Throw me overboard and the storm will end, okay? Look at verse 13, however. Verse 12, he tells them, just throw me into the sea. Verse 13, however, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let this, let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. What we see here is the crew at first does not throw him overboard. Did you notice that? He said, get rid of me. But what did they draw? They kept trying to save themselves and Jonah at first. Then when they do throw him overboard they say, Lord, please don't hold this this man's blood against us. Now, I, I might be seeing something that's not here, but what I see is they show a little bit more compassion on Jonah than he shows on them. It seems like These pagan sailors have a little bit more concern for the life of Jonah than he has for them. And what I get from this is oftentimes the unbelievers are a little bit more understanding and patient and kind than sometimes Christians are. I think sometimes our theological imperatives Get in our way, and we're much more interested in telling people that they're going to hell <laughs> rather than showing them a little, a, little, a little bit of love and compassion, a little bit of concern. Now, it's true that oftentimes the unbelievers, because of their own sinful life, are much more accepting and understanding of others who have maybe similar problems. And it's true that oftentimes Christians are put off by the lifestyle um, of people and what they're doing. And so we have a tendency to become um, judgmental. And uh, then we, we say, well, I'm just sharing the truth with them. What kept me coming back to my first church even as I was very slow in responding to the gospel what kept me coming back to my first church was their love and their acceptance of who I was just where I was just where I was that kept me coming back Hmm. now going on Notice verse um, 16. It said, this is still in chapter 1. Then the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. Isn't that interesting? That's contrasted to verse 5 when it says, At the beginning of the storm, the sailors began to be afraid, and every mind cried out to his own God. Ah. What we see illustrated here is oftentimes God's used Jonah's disobedience to bring these sailors to maybe, I don't, I'm not saying a, a converted state, but at least fearing the Lord. They, they had a strong witness. And even though Jonah was doing it for evil, what he was doing was evil, what God turned it around and used it for what? For good. Uh, we see that. Now, that doesn't give us license to do evil. Matter of fact, Paul writes at the end of chapter five in Romans, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? <laughs> His answer is no, <laughs> in no way. But we see that oftentimes God is bigger than our own disobedience. God is bigger than our own disobedience and he will use us, no matter how bad we are. And we always remember that phrase, where that phrase comes from with the story of Joseph. When, God, when Joseph said to his brothers who had done him dirt, he said, you meant it for evil, but God turned it around and used it for the good. Finally, um, what we see illustrated here is, is that um, The Lord loves those whom, the Lord disciplines, excuse me, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Look at verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. This is after he was thrown out of the boat. And Jonah was in the stomach of a fish three days and three nights. Not a very good place. Doesn't sound like a good place. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2, at the beginning of his prayer, just look at some of these phrases. Verse 2 of chapter 2, I cried from the depths of Sheol. Verse 3, All your breakers and billows have passed over me. Verse 4, I said I have been expelled from your sight. These are all describing his experience. Verse 5, Water encompassed me. the point of death. Verse latter half of five. The great deeps engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Verse six. The earth with its bars was around me forever but you had brought me up my life from the pit. What we see here is Jonah's experience was far from pleasant. Because of his disobedience God was disciplining him in a very severe way. And I don't know about you, but three days and three nights in the belly of a rather large fish is not something that you would want to look forward to or enjoy. God disciplines those whom he loves. I was reminded of the Psalm, Psalm 32. Let me read it. Psalm 32 is David's response to his sin with Bathsheba verse 3 of Psalm 32 says when I kept silent about my sin my body wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer God's heavy hand of discipline was on him. Later on when he repents in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan says to him, Now, you've been forgiven. You've confessed your sin and God has forgiven you. But the sword will never depart from your house because of what you have done. The heavy hand of the Lord of discipline was upon him because of his disobedience. Okay. Third question. What began to turn the situation around? Not really pleasant, Neil. At this point, what began to turn the situation around? Two things. We see it in chapter 2 and also in chapter 3. Two things that began to turn the situation around. One Jonah prayed. (laughs) That's a good thing to do. Jonah prayed. And two, Jonah obeyed the Lord. He prayed and he obeyed the Lord. Keep those in mind. Now, let's take a look first at his prayer. Essentially, his prayer in chapter 2 breaks down to two sections. In verses 1 through 6, he describes his situation where he is. Then, beginning in verse 7, then he turns. And he recommits himself to the things of the Lord. Let me re- we've looked at the first half. Let's look at the second half. Beginning in verse 7. Here's his prayer. Chapter 2 verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. As a result of his prayer verse 10 says, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now so Jonah prays and as a result of his prayer the Lord causes the fish to vomit him back up on the beach imagine what he looked like at that time now what I found interesting as I looked at this prayer is there no mention of him admitting that he had done anything wrong did you notice that? no repentance all it says is essentially, that he's recommitting himself to the things of the Lord. That's what he's saying. He says, uh, I will sacrifice to you, voice of thanksgiving, what I vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord.
1: No real
0: dealing with what had happened. He just recommits himself to the Lord. Now what I see here, what I see here is that the Lord responds to whatever small move we make. He just just made a small move. (laughs) The story's not over yet, but he, he made a move towards the Lord. Now James chapter 4 verse 8 says, if you will draw near to the Lord, he will do what? He'll draw near to you. Now it doesn't mean you know that much. It could mean that if you just move this close, if you just begin to move to the Lord, he's right there. He's right there for you. He's drawn near to you. Romans 10, 13 says, Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. all in the name of the Lord. Do you remember the thief on the cross? We won't beat that poor man to death. <laughs> Excuse that illustration. But all he said was, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. What about all the other stuff that you're supposed to do? What did Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now from these passages and from this passage I I get the idea that if we'll just begin to move towards the Lord he begins to move towards us let me give you an illustration several years ago one of the members of our church began to bring a friend from work to our church and he was not a believer but you know what he really enjoyed our worship he enjoyed the warm fellowship and, and the friendship you guys showed him. And I talked to him, and he, he told me, I'm not a believer. I says, but you keep coming back. He says, yeah. And over about, about a period of a year, he moved from being a non-believer to a committed Christian. To a committed Christian. Without me trying to force my agenda, my schedule for him upon him. And without his friend doing that. He began, he made, his first step was not to become a believer, was just to show up at church. But what? What does that say? He began to draw near to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He responded to that. Now what that means is, is, is two applications. The Lord will meet you just where you're at. Just where you're at. Just where you're at. Now that's not the end of the story. He's not finished with you yet. But he'll meet you there. Right there. And we know that he has incredible things for us. If we'll just begin that work. Begin that drawing. And the second thing. And it speaks to us as believers. We need to cultivate an atmosphere in our life, in our business life and in our church life, where it's okay to question and talk. It's it's okay, if, you know, it's all right. Just to question and talk about these things. Cultivate an attitude of understanding and compassion. Okay, so Jonah prayed. He, he began that move towards the Lord, and the Lord began to move him. Now, notice in chapter 3, this is the second act. So the first thing he did was he prayed. He began to move towards the Lord, and the Lord met him there. The second thing he did, what? He obeyed what God told him to do. Look. Now the word of the Lord, this is chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And he said, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, proclaim the proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. Verse 3, so Jonah arose, went to Nineveh. Verse 4, then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah did exactly what the Lord told him to do. Isn't that what happened? Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, I want you to preach, and he preached the message. He did it. He obeyed the Lord. But if you'll notice, as we look at chapter 4, we'll see, we'll see that in no way has Jonah's attitude changed towards the Ninevites. Did you notice that? He went and did, but according to chapter 4, he still was not very happy about what was going on. Now, what does that say to us? It says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him. Trust in the Lord in all your way. Don't do it your way, but do it the Lord's way. What the Lord is looking for is people who will yield their will to him without fully, always fully understanding what the Lord is calling you to do. Is that possible? That's what he's looking for. He's looking for people who will say, Yes, Lord, I'll I'll do it. Now what I find is that oftentimes my feelings follow my actions. In other words, if I start to do what the Lord tells me to do, even though I don't understand it at first. As I do it, I begin to think, oh, yeah, 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 I kind of understand. Now, the story's not over yet. The story's not over yet. But he just began to do what the Lord told him to do. Maybe the experience in the fish had finally convinced him, "Uh, maybe I need to listen to the Lord. And so that's exactly what he did. Now, oftentimes, if I wait for my feelings to change, Nothing happens. (laughs) Nothing happens. I think sometimes we believe that conversion should be like Paul. We should all be like Paul, right? One day he's a persecutor of the church just going out and arresting people and beating them up and throwing them in jail couple of days later he gets converted and he's out there in Damascus preaching the gospel. Sometimes we think we're all supposed to be like that. Uh, maybe some of us are. But a lot of us are kind of like, do you remember the story of the man who had a, a demon possessed son and Jesus healed him and, and, and Jesus said, just believe me. And he said, Lord, I I do believe, but what? But help me in my unbelief. We see Jonah is not fully convinced yet. <laughs> but he began to move in the direction because he began to obey the word of the Lord. Even though, even though in inside he was still struggling with the issue that we've been talking about that began to turn the situation around okay, last question kind of really pulling this thing together here what does Jonah's experience teach us? what does Jonah's experience teach us? two things first, the Lord is not like us <laughs> the Lord not like us at all, most of us Look what he says in verse 2 of chapter 4. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I knew you were like that. And matter of fact, look at verse 11 of chapter, the last verse in the book. It says, this is God speaking back to Jonah after the plant dies. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which... There are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between the right and the left as well as many animals. He says, come on, Jonah. Shouldn't I have compassion on those people? And then you're thinking, what is these hundred and twenty people? 120,000 people who don't know the difference between the right and the left? Many people think that's young children. That's an allusion to young children. But it also could be a colloquial expression talking about, you know, all oh, those people, they don't even know the right hand from the left. Talking about pagan people. However you want to take that, that's your deal. But the point is that God uh, is what? Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in mercy. And if he's given a chance, if he's given the smallest chance, he'll relent concerning the calamity that he was planning for us. That's God. That's not us. (laughs) At least that's not Jonah. Now, the classic illustration of God's compassion and mercy is in who? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. He didn't have to send Jesus. Excuse the expression. He could have let us all rot in (laughs) hell. Couldn't he have? He didn't have to, but he would because he's gracious and compassionate. And he went all the way out of his way to send Jesus Christ to us. So that we could find salvation. So the first thing that we see is Jesus, the Lord, is not like us. Because oftentimes we're very prejudiced. We're very partial towards different people. Or it could be the color of their skin. It could be what they, the kind of life they live. Could be that they're all pierced or their hair's colored or whatever it is. We look. We receive a face. We look at them and say, Oh, I don't. I don't like you. Yeah, I like you. Now, look at verse 3. And also verse 8, same expression. He says, death is better to me than life. Now, I don't know about you, but those are very disturbing verses, aren't they? I hope they disturb you because they disturb me. Because even after Nineveh repented, even after Nineveh repented and they turned to the Lord and there was this giant revival, Jonah was saying ixnay on this. I wanted you to snuff them out. I don't want anything to do with them. I'd rather die than see these Ninevites being blessed by you. Wow. Wow. What this says to us is this kind of feelings, these kind of partiality towards people of different colors, different races, or different lifestyles, is often tied deeply to who we are and the way we look at life. All of us remember the story of Corrie Ten Boom. You remember the story of Corrie Ten Boom. She's in the German prison camp. Her, her sister dies there, and then years later, she's preaching the gospel after the end of the war in Germany. She's preaching to us in Germany, and it says in, in the book, The Hiding Place, and I found it in our library, in the book, The Hiding Place, it talks about she's preaching evangelistically in Germany, and it says that out of the crowd comes one of her prison guards. He came up to me in the church, beaming and bowed down, and he said, How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people of Germany the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as those angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus had died for this man also. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not even the slightest spark of warmth or charity. So she prayed, and she prayed twice. And God gave her the grace to lift up her hand and embrace her brother. Her newfound brother. Well, how do we get started? How how do you get started on the road of dealing with our pride, especially our prejudice, and our partiality towards people, perhaps? Mm -hmm. Well, we could talk about psychology, but that's of no use. Maybe the Bible has an answer. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is confronted with a Pharisee and um, the Pharisee says to him how can I receive eternal life? And he he says, well what does the law say? And he says, well you should love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind and strength love your neighbors yourself and uh, Jesus said, well you've answered correctly, do this and live but then the man wishing to justify him, this is found in Luke 10 says to himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Remember the story? And then Jesus tells the story about what? The Good Samaritan. That's the intro to the Good Samaritan. Now if you remember, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other without, (laughs) you know, they had perhaps some reasons years ago, but they just hated each other The Jews didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't want anything to do with the Jews. And what does Jesus tell? He tells the story of a Samaritan who, what did he do? He just did good. He began to do good to the hated group of people. Hmm, maybe there's something there. The Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us But the first thing we need to do is to begin to change our actions towards them. Begin to act towards them. Begin to love our neighbor. Those who we have problems with. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has an interesting phrase. Let me get there. Matthew chapter 5. Um, Jesus says, same context You've heard say that you should love your neighbor And hate your enemy But I say to you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you So the second thing the Bible says Begin to change your actions toward them The second thing it says what? Begin to pray for them Pray for them Now the last scripture Is found in um, John chapter 8 John chapter 8 Jesus says, if you'll continue my word, you're truly my disciples. And if you continue my word, you'll know the truth. And then remember the phrase? And the truth will do what? Ah, there it is. The truth of God's word, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Begin to act differently towards those people. And number two, begin to pray. And if we'll continue in that word, he will do what? Set us free. So that indeed, we would say, the people of God are just like the Lord. They don't receive a face. They show no partiality towards a certain race, certain color of skin, certain group of people that we have animosity towards. If we'll continue in his word We'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free so that we might be just a little bit more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, to that end, we want to open up our hearts. We're so thankful for the book of Jonah and how it convicts us of our own pride, our own prejudice, our own partiality towards groups of people People that for some reason, whatever reason, we don't want to have anything to do with. Give us the grace to be a little bit more like you and a little bit less like ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.